Well, our society doesn't do ceremony as well as many other cultures around the world or, or throughout history. We do have a few, however, and one that I've always found a bit ridiculous is the ceremony surrounding the beginning or the opening of a prestigious and important new building project. And that would be the groundbreaking ceremony. Um, I, I've always found those a little bit preposterous. I found a few pictures to illustrate silliness. I have no idea what the project is here that they are breaking ground for, but I'm glad that everyone seems to be having a good time. But seriously, high heels? <laughs> Where's high heels to a groundbreaking? He's breaking up the ground and airing it. Sure. Thank you, Farmer Christie. <laughs> and do we think that any of these people have held a shovel at any point in the last 20 years? Uh, I, I have my doubts. Plus, Somebody laid down a tarp for them. They are not even breaking ground that they intend to break. They're just putting their shovels in some dirt. There is no ground being broken here. Groundbreaking ceremonies are all about the big wigs, the white collars, the upper offices stepping down to get the glory before hundreds of no-name plugs go and actually do the work. Or look at this one. Are we fooling anybody with the hard hats here, people? <laughs> Is that supposed to make it look more legit? If so, let me just remind them that they're wearing business suits and business dresses. And that's not even the silliest part. Do you see what they're sticking their shovels into? In a trough. In a trough inside a building. They're not, there's, no, there's not even any ground that's going to be broken. They're inside a foyer. Right. I never noticed that. But yeah. Yeah, all these fancy shovels. And the dirt is in some flower pots. It's, it's just a touch ridiculous. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. The silliness of the next one is obvious. Yeah. Yeah. There's Ronald McDonald breaking ground. It really saps the distinguished air out of the event. But old Ronnie is not the only fire-haired clown posing awkwardly with a shovel. Oh. Oh, That was a cheap shot, Mr. Trump, I apologize. Please don't start a Twitter war with me. Uh, anyway, here we are in the book of Acts, and our author, who is almost certainly Luke, our author is poised with his scholarly foot on the shovel, uh, poised over the fertile soil that is the early church. He's ready to dig in. His masterpiece of a gospel laid the foundation and established the blueprints for the kingdom of God as trumpeted by John, and as ushered in by Jesus Christ. But now, Jesus has gone back up to the top floor to rightfully claim the corner office at the right hand of God. And as we'll see, the work is left in the hands of the grunts, the plugs, the nobodies. The great cosmic boss breaks ground on history's greatest work project, the church, using a bunch of men and women that Luke repeatedly portrayed as ignorant, incompetent, and incomplete. On the surface level, the church's groundbreaking ceremony as recorded in Acts seems just as ridiculous as the ones I've outlined in the slideshow, filled with disciples who seem just as ill-prepared as those in high heels, just as phony as those wearing pretend hard hats in an enclosed foyer, just as out of their element as Ronald McDonald. Does the boss really know what he's doing here? as he got his plans in order properly. As we read the last words of Jesus to his disciples, and the word disciples means followers, 
who are soon to become known as the apostles, which means the sent ones, I think we'll see that in the case of the great groundbreaking ceremony of the church, the boss does indeed have a plan. And as always, the boss is willing to get his hands dirty to see that plan come to fulfillment. Let's read Acts 1, 1 to 8. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As he gets into the groundbreaking ceremony, the inbreaking of the church, the formation of the church, Luke begins his second masterpiece by summarizing the building plan so far. And his summary is very interesting. For all that he could say about Jesus' ministry and work on earth, Luke boils it down to just two little words, two little verbs. Jesus did stuff, and Jesus said stuff. That's it. That's all we get in his summary of his first work. Everything Jesus began to do and teach, my translation says. Say is probably a better word. We know he was the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Son of David, because he behaved as Scripture told us the Messiah would behave, as the Son of Man would behave, the Son of God, Son of David. He came for the sick and the outcast. He demonstrated effortless power over the natural and supernatural world. He was full of divine grace and truth. Everything he did pointed to his Father. But it's not just what he did, he also proved his credentials by what he said. He taught with dominant authority. He illuminated truth in a new and transformative way. And so our entire two-year journey through the Gospel of Luke gets boiled down to two words. Everything Jesus began to do and say. But Luke takes the core of Jesus' identity beyond simply what he said and did and quickly emphasizes the people who witnessed what Jesus said and did. Luke brings the disciples into the picture, but now they have a new shiny title. They are now the apostles. Ones who are sent from the rabbi to, yes, that's right, do and say, speak and behave as their rabbi did. Then, right at the end of verse 2, after being reminded of Jesus' credentials and the importance of the apostles, there's another crucial character who enters the scene. A character who will dominate our study of Acts, and that's the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that the apostles will receive instructions, and it's through the Holy Spirit that they receive the power they need to speak and behave like their rabbi. In continuing his summation of the building plan so far, Luke goes on to fill in some blanks about a supremely mysterious time in history, the time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. It's a little bit amazing to me that we don't know more about what Jesus taught during those 40 days. Isn't it to you? I mean, you think that if you're the disciples and this dead man who you worship as Lord and Savior has come back to life and is having breakfast with you, you'd think you'd write down a few of the things he has to say. But we don't know a lot about what Jesus said 
in that intermittent time, in those 40 days. For whatever reason, we're given few specifics about the post-resurrection, pre-ascension period. But that's not to say that we know nothing. In fact, Luke fills us in, in his opening verses of, of Acts, he fills us in on three important things regarding this time period, reminding us of where he left off in chapter 24 of his gospel. So three important things about this time period. Number one, the period of time lasted 40 days. This sounds like it's just a, a, a detail, right? It's just Luke is very specific. He wants to establish the historicity of what he has to say, so it makes sense he would include exactly how many days Jesus was back for. But it's more than just history. 40 days sounds pretty familiar in Scripture, right? Goliath. Goliath mocked the Israelites for 40 days before David took him down. That was a big deal. Jonah warned Nineveh of coming judgment, judgment that was coming in 40 days if they didn't repent. And they repented, so that was a big deal. Elijah, he ran for 40 days and 40 nights all the way to Mount Sinai. That was a big deal story. And the spies, the spies in the book of Numbers explored the promised land for 40 days before deciding that they couldn't conquer it. And that decision was, again, a pretty big deal. But none of those stories are as big a deal as these three. Anybody want to guess the, the big three examples of 40 days? The flood. The flood. Absolutely. The flood rain of judgment fell for 40 days and 40 nights, creating a clean slate for God to recreate humanity through Noah, the righteous one. Um, that's number three. Good job. Number two is uh, Moses, after delivering the law and sealing the covenant with the people of Israel, is called up to the mountain to be in God's presence. And you know how long he's on that mountain for without eating or drinking anything? That's right. 40 days, 40 nights. And finally, most recently in scripture, thank you, Darcy. I was hoping somebody would, would shout it out. Jesus had to endure 40 days of fasting in the desert with no company except the torturous temptation of Satan. And Jesus triumphed. In each of these important events, the Father was present with his faithful servant, whether that's Noah, Moses, or Jesus, for 40 days, kicking off a time where God would actively reshape his people. These 40 days marks a time of reshaping. The flood was a recreation of humanity. It's God starting over because they, they regress to the point where they're wicked all the time. Nothing they do is good ever. And so God says, I have to wipe them out and start again. There's only one who's righteous, and that's Noah and his family. So I'm going to start again with them. It's a recreation episode, and it took 40 days for that flood to, to, to come down. The law and the formation of Israel, that's the calling of humanity. That's the establishing of what God wants for humanity. God chooses a people. He, he selects Israel. Out of all the peoples of earth, he chooses these people and gives them the law. And they are to be the beacon of hope for all humanity. And then we have the ministry of Jesus, which is the redemption of humanity. In Jesus, we know exactly what God wants us to be like. He is the most perfect image of God that there ever has been. And so Jesus, his ministry, is, is the redemption of humanity. Yeah, Darcy. Is that the same 40 days that he fasted before he was crucified? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Um, before he was crucified? He passed, I think he passed again as well. I don't know if it was for 40 days, but I'm pretty sure he passed it. I'm pretty sure, I don't know. 
as far as my recollection of the Bible. There might be some legends surrounding that, or it might be in one of the extra biblical sources, but I've, I've actually never heard of that. But, um, that would be very interesting. So now, here we are in Acts, the beginning of Acts. And Luke begins with this big neon sign blinking, 40 days, 40 days, important, important, take notice, important, 40 days. Why is 40 days mentioned in Acts? How is God reshaping humanity in Acts again? Well, I think through the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the formation of the church, that's how he recreates us, just like the flood. He gives direction for our lives, just like Moses in the law. And indeed, the Holy Spirit is the thing that compels us to look and live and act and behave like the Son, like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the force that unites Noah, Moses, and Jesus together, and then invites each of us to be fellow participants in this great building project that he's undertaking. All of this, that the Holy Spirit is reshaping humanity in a new way, Luke doesn't come out and say it, but if we're creative, we can see it in just the mention of 40 days. And isn't that really something? 40 days is always important in Scripture. The second thing that we know about this time frame between the resurrection and the ascension is that Jesus occasionally appeared before his disciples. He showed up every once in a while. Paul gives us a list of these appearances in 1 Corinthians. You can read that while I speak if you'd like. But what did Jesus do with these appearances? What, what did he focus on? Well, the same thing he focused on when he was alive before the resurrection. Um, he focused on things that would prove his credentials. He said and did things to prove he was who he said he is, that he's really alive. Specifically, Luke says that he sought to prove the reality of his return to life, that he was actually alive again. He was no ghost, nor was he merely a reanimated corpse. He was a new being, but one that is very much alive. Luke 24 tells us he did this through the revealing of his wounds and through the sharing of a meal. But he did this because it was crucial for his disciples to understand what would become the core of their faith. And the core of their faith is this, that Jesus really died and that he really returned to life and that he really rules over humanity for all eternity. That it really actually happened. It's something that he still requires disciples to have faith in and to understand today. So he occasionally appeared. He appeared to prove himself that he was real, that he was alive. And the third thing we know about those 40 days, we know that Jesus kept his eyes on the same foundation plans that he always focused on during his earthly life, and that was the blueprints for the kingdom of God. He focused on the kingdom of God. That's what it says here. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God, it says in verse 3. There's nothing Jesus talked more about while he was alive. He loved talking about the kingdom of God. And now that his death and resurrection have inaugurated the kingdom, he prepares those who break ground on the kingdom for what he requires them to do. The only specifics that we're given about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, other than the specific length, are found in this teaching, in verses 4 to 5, that once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he focuses on the kingdom of God during this time, and then he gives them a command, a very specific command. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when he does come, you'll be baptized. Baptized something like the baptism with water. Do you think they understood it? Like what the Holy Spirit was? I'm not sure. 
that they understood it, but to their credit, they obeyed, which they hadn't been real stellar at doing for a long time. They may have understood some things, and I think maybe I'll touch on that here. While eating, it's always while eating for Luke. Table fellowship is so important. But Jesus commands them. This isn't just a suggestion like, hey, you guys should probably stick around for a bit. The Holy Spirit will come at some point. He commands them. It's a harsh word. He commands them to remain in Jerusalem until the Father sends the Holy Spirit. We saw this in Luke 24. The very last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And now, the very first words that that Luke records of Jesus in Acts. And in those words, the Holy Spirit again takes center stage. He is the promised gift of the Father. He is the source of hope and peace. He is the strength of the faithful. And here, he will come as some form of, in some form of baptism, which is a strong word for, for Jesus to use, a baptism. It's a beautiful image. And we know that when he comes, wind and fire will replace water but it'll still be enveloping. It'll still be consuming. It's a callback to John the baptizer, who in Luke 3.16 says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You could go back even further than John. Like Sharon asked if the disciples knew what was coming. They knew what John had said. John had said he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But you can go back further to when they were boys and they were studying their scriptures and they will remember Joel. And in Joel it says, this is Joel 2, 29-30, In those days I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. On that day, that terrible day, that day of reckoning, I will pour out my spirit on my people and it will come in fire. Now for Joel, that's definitely a day of judgment. But it's fascinating to me that when the Spirit is poured out in, in Acts, in, in the inauguration of the church, it's not judgment so much as a recreation. It's a reshaping. It's God coming down to be with his people. For Joel and for John and for Jesus, the kingdom of God will come with a pouring out of the Spirit on a day filled with fire. The day that the prophets anticipated for centuries is imminent. It's coming. It's here. And Jesus used his final appearances to his apostles to prepare them for that day, that groundbreaking day. I'm almost done here, but I want to mention one more important thing. It's here that we finally hear from the apostles. And in the grand tradition dating back to the very beginning of their calls to follow Jesus, the disciples missed the point. They screwed up again, completely. They show themselves to be like the groundbreakers who show up in high heels, with phony little hard hats on, shoveling dirt in a foyer. What's the point? They missed the point. They proved themselves to be just another bunch of Ronald McDonald's, a bunch of clowns. And how do they accomplish this spectacular screw-up? By missing the point of the kingdom of God again. See, when Jesus speaks of the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples immediately begin speaking of political power. Here's what they say. So when the apostles were with Jesus... They kept asking, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They go right to the politics of the matter. When Jesus speaks of the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples speak of political power, but the two have nothing to do with each other, and they never will again. 
Politics and the Holy Spirit are not the same. That is not the power that Jesus brings with him. The disciples want Israel to be returned to power. And as the discussion in the upper room made clear, remember the upper room? Remember Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm going to die, I'm going to shed my blood, it's going to institute this new covenant, but I have to die. What's the first thing the disciples start talking about when Jesus says that? They start arguing about who's the coolest, over who's going to have the best spot in the kingdom, who's the most worthy to be at the right hand when the kingdom comes again. They, They get selfish, they get completely blinded by themselves. They start bickering. It's pathetic. And just as Jesus is speaking of supreme sacrifice, the disciples can only think of what's in it for them. And it's the same thing here. They want the power that comes with riding the coattails of a monarch. They want those corner offices next to the boss. That's all they can think of. Hey, this power you're talking about, Jesus, we're really excited for that power to come back to Israel and we can crush Rome and we can be this eternal earthly kingdom for all time. We're really looking forward to that because we know we know that you're going to give us a pretty sweet spot in that kingdom when, when you do make that happen. But they're just clowns. They're missing the point. They're unprepared for the dirty work required for breaking ground on the kingdom. And Jesus, of course, he sees this. He knows this. He knows what they're getting at. And so he reminds them of what he's already told them. In Mark 13, it says, Not even the Son knows when the Lord will do these great things. Not even the Son knows when the Father will do these things. If the Son doesn't know, why are you asking me? Why are you focused on that? Why do you want to know? I don't even know, Jesus says. So it's not for these 12 men to know, or for us to know, when and how God will act. Only God the Father knows those things. So forget about it. Forget about political might. Forget about a renewed Israel Forget about a national superpower. Forget about it, because that is not the kind of power that my kingdom is about, Jesus says. Influencing people through, through might and through coercion, get that out of your head. That's not what I'm about, Jesus says. Oh yes, my kingdom is certainly about power. It's definitely about power. You saw my power firsthand, he reminds them. You saw my power give worth to the outcast. You saw my power give value to the unwanted. You saw my power give comfort to the hurting. You saw my power give purpose to the ordinary. Like, by the way, you 12 schmoes here. You saw my power give life to the dead. You saw my power bring glory to the Father. My kingdom is all about power, but not in the way that you think. You've got to forget the power displayed by Caesar. You've got to forget the power that you crave through mammon, through wealth. You've got to forget the power that your ancestors displayed in the Old Testament, in Israel. Forget what the world tells you about power. Jesus is saying this to the disciples. This is also me saying it to you. Forget what the world has to say about power. Because the power that Jesus gives is a different kind of upside-down power for a different kind of upside-down person in a different kind of upside-down kingdom. You will need power. You will need power. But that power will be will be provided to you. It's not something you can strive for yourself. It will be given to you as a gift. It will be provided for you in the form of His presence dwelling inside of you. And this presence, this Holy Spirit, will transform you and strengthen you and move you in concentric circles out from yourself. This power moves you outward. So Jesus says here, you will be my witness telling people about me everywhere, starting 
close, starting in Jerusalem, which is the first third of Acts, or the first major chunk of Acts, and then throughout Judea and Samaria, which is the next chunk of Acts, and then finally to the ends of the earth, to Rome and beyond, which is the last half of the book of Acts. You will move out from yourself, but not just geographically. You will move from your narrow-minded understanding of who God's love is for to having it exploded out to now God's love is available even to the Gentiles. It will be a journey, geographically speaking and theologically speaking. And you will not be able to make those journeys by yourself. That's still true for me and for you. We cannot journey out of ourself by ourselves. We require a guide. We require power that we don't have ourselves. We require the Holy Spirit. And so with this new kind of upside-down power, you will be my witnesses. Jesus says that to the, the apostles, and he says it to you. You will be my witnesses. Though you are clowns, sorry, I apologize, I hate to break it to you. Though you are clowns, though you are ill-prepared, though you don't fully understand, still I will call you to put your feet on the shovel and build something beautiful. And unlike the corporate bigwigs in the pictures that we saw before, who represent power in a world corrupted by selfishness and pride, I will not abandon you, Jesus says. I will not leave you to do the hard work by yourself. Every job I give you to do, I will be right there with you. I will be filling you with power to get the job done. I will strengthen you to be my witnesses, to do my work, to break my ground. I will be doing the work with you, as always. So, to summarize all of this, and I know it was kind of all over the place. Before moving on to describe the work of building the church, Luke has us sit here in the groundbreaking ceremony. It is a, a strange ceremony, and the workers don't seem ready. The workers, as in the apostles, they don't seem ready for it. But the boss knows what he's doing. It's all about power, but not power in a political or corporate sense. In the book of Acts, it's the boss who does the work by empowering all of his servants to do the job that he gives them. The job of witnessing about him all over the world, constantly breaking new ground in our neighbors' hearts to prove that he is still really alive, just as he was in the 40 days after his resurrection. He is still really alive. We are people living in the after effects of those 40 days, people living in a new, reshaped, and rebuilt reality, ushered in by the Holy Spirit, ushered in by the boss. <coughs> a boss willing to step down and get his hands dirty, bloody even, in order to break new ground with us, his imperfect workers empowered by his presence. And as with our study in, in the book of Acts, this groundbreaking is really just the beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though we're ill-prepared, even though we seem like a bunch of clowns sometimes, thank you that you call us to break, continue to break ground in your kingdom, here on earth, here in Clyde, wherever we are. Thank you that you empower us. Thank you that you're really alive, and that we can know that through your word, through speaking and doing. You're a good Father. You're worthy of all the glory that you receive and so much more. And so as we get more in tune with the Holy Spirit, and as we continue to break ground for your kingdom, I pray that you would receive more glory. Thank you for this church, for this little corner of the kingdom. Thank you for how you continue to shape us and rebuild us. It takes longer than 40 days, but thank you that you have patience with us and are faithful with us. Thank you, Jesus, for your, your words to us and Holy Spirit for your presence in us. We pray all these things in the name of the Father. Amen. <laughs>